Hey, this is Keith. Or some actor playing Keith, I'm not really sure anymore. But um, we're coming to the end. The end of my Los Angeles con spree. But before I leave, I have some scores to set and discover a couple truths to be revealed. It's all going to come down to the season finale of Rideshare Episode X. It's going to drop on December 3rd. Now, until then, I want you to catch up by binge listening the first season. And I suggest that you do exactly as I say. Or you're going to miss all the fun. Hey, it's Brent Pope, the host of Breakfast with Brent Pope. You've seen me on some of your favorite TV shows saying things like, give it up, Jimmy. You got to sink this putt to win. On Breakfast with Brent Pope, I sit down with guests from the entertainment world and we do it all over breakfast. Or should I say breakfast? Every week on Breakfast, you get inside Hollywood info and tips, great breakfast wrecks and booty debates. Most of all, you get the most delightful 30 minutes of your week. So dig in. It's Breakfast time. Listen at breakfast.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever fine podcasts are found. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to your favorite G.I. Joe podcast show. Now, guys, we haven't talked about G.I. Joe in a very, very long time. But by the way, this is knowing <clears throat> season three. <laughs> Wait, is is the cough in there too? The cough is literally, yeah. I I don't know how to. We got to get some somebody to put the copy out of chance. Get your translate on that and tell me how you spell that. (laughs) Uh, I am Ray Stacanus. I am Robert Clark Chan. I'm Gina Ippolito. And we are joined here in studio by a very special guest. Uh, back to the podcast for the umpteenth time, <laughs> uh, Buzz Dixon. Uh, a hero of GI Joe. Thank you very I mean, much. You've done so much, and if I try to like put actual like uh, uh, descriptions and stuff, I'll just get it wrong. Again. <laughs> that's, I, that's I, I got I it wrong the first time, so you can get it wrong. This time. <laughs> <laughs> Not gonna lie, I was kind of wondering if you had managed to mispronounce his name. Like. No, <laughs> how dare! Okay, we've got uh, the last five guests in a row. I've mispronounced their name, including really? Dominic Johnson, which you think shouldn't be possible, including Catherine, 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 Catherine Derickus. <laughs> yeah, I got that one wrong. My and, my, my wife uh, is Korean, and for the first six months we were going together, I was bugsh. <laughs> there's there's no Z sound in the Korean language, and it took her took her that long uh, to to master the Z sound. <laughs> well, uh, we finally, we finally, we finally watched GI Joe the movie. Yeah, it's a live stream. You can get you guys at home can watch it if you haven't seen it already. It's on uh, YouTube. You We've got a link to it. Eating pizza. We're also drinking beer. We're we're we decided to drink a uh, drink every time certain things in the movie happen. That is correct. So every single time somebody said the My words. God, you'd never finish this thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you were unconscious time. by about the 30 minute mark, I guess. Well, was what it, was, was it? Was it this every time, I command? Every time uh, uh, this I command mm-hmm. or uh, Cobra Commander says once a man mm-hmm. or, oh. or somebody says the words Cobra La. Those were the three. Yeah, yeah. I, there may have been others, but they were lost I think to the, the PBR. One, the once a man, I think, was what got us. <laughs> the once a man was a clever suggestion because on paper, I didn't think it would be that much, yeah. and I was wrong. Because <laughs> the, the the this I command and the Cobra Law that gets you going. Yeah. Then you hit the midpoint throughout. of the movie, and this once a man becomes <laughs> well during your the end. transformation. I think he said it like twelve <laughs> times. We had to chug a PBR piece. <laughs> um, and you were the you were you weren't the writer on uh, the movie, no, but I you was were the, the writer. Oh, I thought you were the story. Uh, no, uh, no, it's, okay. uh, I, I'll I'll give the 
the background there so you can understand the context. Just real quick, because Ron Friedman was listed as the official writer of the exactly. movie. That's where I was yeah. confused about. Ron had a good agent. Now, I'm, I'm not <laughs> being, I am not being starky when I say that. I mean, that's the honest to goodness truth. Ron is an excellent writer. He's really good. Uh, Absolutely. If, you, if you've seen anything that he's done, he's he's smart, he's clever. His comedy is just great. I mean, he does wonderful comedy. Um, and he was brought aboard by Hasbro Early on, the very first G.I. Joe stuff, he was the one that came on and wrote the, the first the first miniseries and I think the second miniseries. I may be wrong on that, but I know definitely he wrote the very first one. And as I said, he had a very good agent, and the very good agent got him certain guarantees. And one of the guarantees was if there was going to be a G.I. Joe movie, he would be the nice. screenwriter of record on it. Mm. Um, I was brought in because – after they did the first two miniseries, they were starting to do it as a regular series. They hired Steve Gerber as the story editor. And Steve and I had worked together for a long time. We were good friends. And Steve passed a couple of scripts to me and said, you know, well, first off, he said, did you see the miniseries? And I said, yeah. And he said, what did you think? And I said, well, and I gave him a very brief list of some of the problematic areas. <laughs> the the least problematic was the physically ridiculous stuff like jets swooping down to cut <laughs> tanks in half with their wingtips. That all, that all holds up. Yeah, that all know, holds up. You know, I mean, it's like it, that was in like the third Rambo movie where he's playing chicken with a <laughs> helicopter and a tank. And it's like taking a brick and an egg and, you know, smacking them together. And you go in Rambo, you know, the whole point of the helicopter is it can, it can fly. You can get up and come around behind the tank where it's less heavily armored <laughs> and, uh, you know, shoot it from behind. Anyway, um, so I said there were the, the technical stuff was the easy thing to handle. The more problematic stuff was even though Ron had been in the military, he had pretty much forgotten everything about how a military unit works. <laughs> And there were scenes like sergeants barking orders at colonels and, you know, people were not interacting with one another the way a real unit did. And I had I had been in the Army for six years. I had gotten discharged in 78. And so this was mid-60s. It was, it was still a relatively fresh experience for me. And I made – in the scripts that Steve sent me, I made several notes where the um, – the characters were not acting the way that people in the military would act. I mean, just basic military protocol. And Steve passed these notes along to uh, Hasbro through Sunbow and said, you know, Buzz, Buzz is a good writer and he's got military experience. We ought to bring him on as, um, as a story editor. And they said, well, we don't want to hire another story editor yet. And Steve kind of said, well, you don't know how I write, do you? <laughs> and I'm saying I love Steve, but, I mean, Steve would be the first to admit he had deadline problems. And so by the end of the first season, uh, there were like three assistant story editors, and I was one of them. And then mm -hmm. for season two, I was promoted up to the to full story editor, and I story edited all of season two. Yeah, you, you were like the head writer, right? Am I? We didn't have the term head writer. Okay. Um, uh, I just, uh, you know, every everybody who was working at Sunbow West at the time was was a, a staff writer on every show that they weren't a story editor on. Of course, because basically, you know, if if you're running into problems, you know, if uh, you know Roger Slifer said, "Hey, we need a couple of ponies to to 
fill in the the schedule. Okay, everybody stop your Transformer and G.I. Joe, knock out a pony episode, and then go back, you know. And that was good because it kept your mind fresh. You never got (laughs) bogged down. You never got locked into a groove. You could always jump over to another show for a few, Mm -hmm. you know, a few days and work on that. Clear your head, so to speak, and then come back. That just blows my mind, though. That you know, you're sitting there and you're you're in the trenches writing GI Joe, Transformers, etc. And suddenly they just come to you and be like, "Hey, write this episode of Gem, or write this episode of My Little Pony, or, or, or something that's Roger, Roger, very, very different." Roger created Lobo for DC. Okay? <laughs> yeah. and I, and you're taking the guy you created. You're sitting there going, "Who do we want?" Story editing this show, My Little Pony. Ah, the guy that created Lobo. He would be perfect. <laughs> I, it's just, it's amazing. It's just every time I hear about like the the the, the system over there and just the, the the working environment. It's just like, oh. <laughs> ah, well, it was it it. We had an office in Westwood. It was it was above. Um, all the, all the businesses have changed since then, of course, but it was above some – like a pizzeria or some yeah. fast food place or something like that. We never ate there. That's the funny thing. We never, uh, How but, bad does it have to be that you wouldn't eat <laughs> at a place that's just a few feet away? Well, um, that's a good question. <laughs> does that mean the offices smelled like a pizzeria? On occasion. Well, they, they when it was lucky, yeah, it smelled like a pizzeria. One, one time <laughs> um, Flint and I were going to lunch. We were coming down the stairs. To, to describe the physical location, you got to imagine you're in Westwood. You've got your typical small businesses on the ground floor. And then above several of these businesses, there's office space. And we had an entire suite of offices above the pizzeria or whatever it was. It was a fast food place of some kind. I can't remember exactly. And so there was this narrow staircase. It was, a, it was like – well, it's like the stairs here. It's the size – the width of a door basically and a uh-huh. narrow staircase going straight up like here – to the um, second floor. So Flint and I are we, we're deciding to go to lunch. We come down. There's a, a wooden door, you know, an anonymous wooden door down at the bottom. We open the door, and this druggie falls over backwards, <laughs> you know, right at our feet. <laughs> and you know, the guy had nodded out on our doorstep, and is like, <laughs> uh, you know, just you know, we're you know, we're trying to be you know as nice as you can because. God knows, you know, he might have a knife, but, you know, it's like, uh, dude, you know, come on, wait, wake up, let's find another doorway, okay? You know, because people are going to be coming in and out of here. We, um, yeah, we had, um, um, and that man yeah. was John Wooden, coach of UCLA. <laughs> that's, that's how that story ends, I assume. Yeah. We had, we had, um, we, we also had, uh, Roof access. If you had to get onto the roof for any reason, you had to come through our offices. And there was another flight of stairs going up to the roof. And we had a female employee. I'm not going to be more specific than that. (laughs) We had at any one time or the other two or three people on staff besides writers who were, you know, females. And one of them went up there to sunbathe during, you know, lunch hour. Nice. And, you know – we're all adults. We're going, okay, fine. You go up there, sunbathe. We're going to stay in our offices, and we, we'll give you your privacy. So, of course, one day she's up there, and the phone guy comes and says, yeah, i got to put in a new line. And said, oh, yeah, well, the, the junction box is up in the roof. Forgetting. Oh, no. <laughs> we hear a scream, and this guy comes down all red-faced and whatnot, and the, the uh, female employee comes down a moment later pulling on her clothes. Don't ever do that! 
<laughs> See, when you say get on the roof for whatever reason, you don't need a reason to go on any roof ever. <laughs> Going on the roof is one of the best things in life you can possibly do. Mm-hmm. This old apartment building I had, uh, 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 I used to live in in East Hollywood, had like a very one of those narrow ladders that you could take, like if you went all the way up to the top and it was never like locked away. Yeah. And so they just realized people were going to go up on the roof, so they actually put a couch up there. Oh, nice. <laughs> and like a, a, an ashtray. Because yeah. they just knew that's what people were going to go up there and yeah. do. Yeah. I, I didn't even smoke and I felt obligated. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like if there's a writer's room with roof access, th- you should be smoking weed. Even yeah. if you don't <laughs> smoke, you should just, for, I, out of general principle, because you have a roof. Well, you go up there and at least have some edibles. <laughs> That That's normal? good. Then climb back down a skinny ladder. Climb back down a skinny ladder. You'll be fine. <laughs> Gravity only goes one way, Gina. You can't fall up unless you've had a lot. <laughs> Just saying. So the genesis of G.I. Joe the movie. Now, you've told us a story before without having to rehash a lot of stuff for the people at home. Uh, a quick version is uh, you, you were asked for two reasons to have a Cobra Emperor. Yeah. And your two ideas were the Arise Serpentor Arise arc yeah. and then the G.I. Joe the movie arc. Yes. And you felt that the Arise Serpentor Arise arc was vastly superior. <laughs> so that's why you took the huge lead on that and put it as the beginning of season two yes. of G.I. Joe. And you kind of left G.I. Joe the movie Cobra La arc to sort of be like, it's also there. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> to to let the people at home know if, if they haven't uh, uh, heard you speak before, that's your opinion on those two stories. Yeah. I, I uh, wish to reiterate my apology for <laughs> Cobra Law. Uh, not, not the concept, but specifically the name. Because as I said, we, you know, we had to run all these th- things past um, uh, Sunbow's legal department, <clears throat> Hasbro's legal department. And when, when I was first told, you know, you have to incorporate the Cobra Emperor because the, the original title was Cobra Emperor. You have to incorporate Cobra Emperor in the story. That's the, they said that he's going to be called Cobra Emperor. And then a couple of weeks later, they said we are changing his name to, and they gave him a different name. And then about a week after that, they changed it to um, King Cobra. King Cobra. And I'm going, right. yeah, okay. I'm going to keep my mouth shut because <laughs> I definitely want to have a villain named after a malt liquor. <laughs> and so I kept my mouth shut on that. And uh, it took them only a week for their legal department to go, hey, whoops, can't call him King Cobra. <laughs> we decided instead to name him Old English. Yeah, Old English or Mad Dog 2020. Mad Dog. <laughs> anyway, so when we're doing the 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 movie – because Ron Friedman had written a screenplay, um, and that whether Ron came up with the characters or whether they told Ron incorporate characters who have these characteristics, I couldn't tell you. But basically, the only thing that ported over from Ron's screenplay was Nemesis Enforcer, which everybody thought was a cool-looking character. I love him. Like yeah. these, these guys didn't really understand him, I think, to a yeah. level. No, it's like, he was fine, except that every single time you talked to him yes. or about him, it was Nemesis Enforcer. Yeah. Yeah. It was yeah. just like, hey, Nemesis, go out and get me a cup of coffee. It was like, Nemesis Enforcer, do this. Yeah. And- it, I think I, I'm like two-thirds of the way through the movie, Chan just all of a sudden says, wait a minute, is his goddamn name Nemesis Enforcer? <laughs> Like for real, and like, yeah, and yeah. it's rad. That guy yeah. is my hero. What are we talking yeah. about right now? He's got wings. Yeah, done. Uh, but anyway, that was the only thing that poured it over. They gave me Ron's script. They they flew me out to New York to discuss the the script with him, and I read it on the airplane. And they said, you know, have some notes for us when you get here. And 
I my note consisted of I would start from scratch, guys. I think you'd spend waste less time coming up with a brand new one than trying to fix this. What was the general theme of the plot of that movie? I honestly couldn't tell you at this oh, point okay. because hmm? that was that was a big hunk of the problem. There was a lot. <laughs> you know, I'm not I'm not slamming Ron here. No, of course. But but there was just a a lack of a through line. There was mm-hmm. lack of something that you could say this this is where we're heading. We're going to this destination and and everything that happens along the way is ancillary to that. You know, and and basically, what I did was I created a spine for the movie. It was it was two spines together. It was, um, uh, what's hot? Not Hawk. Uh, Falcon. Falcon. Lieutenant, Lieutenant Falcon, Falcon yeah. having to prove himself, having to redeem himself and prove himself as a worthy Joe, and at the same time, you know, putting the the kibosh on, forgive me, Cobra Law's plan to you know destroy <laughs> <Drink>. humanity, <laughs> and. So when we're coming around with this, you know, I I had said when we were trying to introduce the Cobra Commander in the TV series, Cobra Emperor, I said, well, the two ideas was they either create him, which I thought was a much better idea, or somebody is behind Cobra and they have secretly been funding this and they've sent somebody to take over because Cobra Commander screwed up too much. And they liked both ideas and they wanted to combine them, which – as as we had told them, if 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 you only give us tell us, you know, drop hints. If they had said in season one, look, we may at some point in the future want to replace Cobra Commander. So drop hints. There's somebody above him, or mm-hmm. there's some organization behind him. We would have done that, and then we could have swapped him out. You know, no problem at all. But we have to explain where Serpentor comes from. So I come up with the idea and. I, I'm trying to think of where this secret empire could be located. And because at that time uh, there had been something set in Antarctica, there had been something set in the South Pacific recently, I, I realized, well, you know, we haven't set anything in the Himalayas in a long time, mm-hmm. not since Lost Horizon. Mm-hmm. And so I said, okay, so he comes from a place in the Himalayas, and we're, I said, as a placeholder, we're going to call it Cobra Law. Because I'm thinking the legal department is going to say, no, you can't name it after the single most famous lost civilization in literature. They fell in love with it. And so I'm going, no, 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 please, please, let me let me change it. I said, give me a few minutes. Give me give me an, an afternoon. I will come up with a much better name than Cobra Lot. No, 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 they liked it. They We're liked good. It. Keep going. Good. <laughs> Thank and you. Then, and then the, the, the second part of that is now that I am I – am, saddled with Cobra Law, trying to work it out where it makes sense in the movie. And I remembered a scene in Lawrence of Arabia where these Bedouin women are are acting like living air raid sirens. They, they're basically on a mountaintop, and when they see the airplanes approaching, they turn and they make this shrill, trilling sound that, that alerts the village, you know, the Turkish air forces on the way. And I thought that would be really cool if we get this high-pitched trill where they go cobra, and then it just has to be really <laughs> shrill, high-pitched sound. And I thought that would sound really cool. We can do that. That'll that'll 
kind of redeem Cobra Law a little bit. So, sounds cool in that context. Maybe not as cool when Serpentor does it. <laughs> well, that was a problem because they, they got Dick Godier to be Serpentor. Who's fantastic. Dick, oh, he was wonderful. Fantastic. Just great guy. I mean, he sold that character like nobody's business. Absolutely. But he's his voice is like four octaves too low for that. <laughs> and we're in the recording we're in the recording session and he gets up there and he goes, Cobra la 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 and I'm going, Whoa, whoa, stop, stop. And I was I was saying to to uh to Jay and Tom and um I uh, was saying, guys, let, give me a few minutes. Let me rewrite this line. Let me give him something better than this. They said, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> no, we said, no, we no, love it. It's not fine. It's not fine. Let me, <laughs> let me redo it. They said, no, nah, we're going to stay with it. So we, we rode that one in. <laughs> so, and this is a question I have. It's about the movie in general. Was, was the plan to do like season one, season two, and then a movie, and then just like call it there? Or was there a plan for a season three of G.I. Joe? Or did they have you work on the movie in addition to season two? Or like how did some of the – how did the – timing of all this work i can't tell you what was going on in the hasbro office sure okay i know that we were anticipating sunbow west would continue writing and producing shows into the foreseeable future i wish and we also recognize that that all toy lines have a a life expectancy and we we were we were being told you know Eight years is like the maximum you can expect out of a toy line, and then you have to retire it for a while. And if you're lucky, you can bring it back at some point in the future. And generally, the first three or four years are going to be your best business, and then after that, it, it kind of peters off. So we were we were anticipating there would probably not be a lot of fresh G.I. Joe material. Um, uh, Charles Michael Hill uh, one of the one of the staff writers and uh, production people there had come up with a really great storyline called the Coil, which he was trying to get him to do as a third season. And the Coil would have basically been the remnants of Cobra, led by uh, uh, Zaymot and Tomax, were going <laughs> to to <laughs> to recreate and reform as a. Um, much more conventional criminal enterprise. Mm. And um, Cobra Commander was going to get involved in the storyline, not as the leader of Cobra, but as this wild card that was like playing, you know, the Joes and the Coil against each other. So like, like a, a more competent Zartan. Exactly. Well, no, yeah. like in uh, the, the, when he shows up in that one episode of the Transformers. The almost human. He's just kind of, yeah. Only, he's yeah. Kind only of, human. Yeah. Yeah. So he was supposed to be that. That was Michael's idea. And then they said, well, we're giving the show over to to Deke. And we, (laughs) you know, they had given the cops show to Deke. The the that season. And we we just did an episode of the cops show. And it was, you know, we were we were we were surprised and and the. We were surprised and a little bit disappointed that we didn't get it. On the other hand, we were a little bit relieved because you know we had our hands full with the visionaries and gem and everything else. But it should have also been the warning sign that you know if if they're willing to go with Deke, then they're going to cut us loose at some point. Mm-hmm. They, they are making purely monetary decisions now. Mm-hmm. As soon as the first robot replaces the first employee, you yeah. know where the dominoes are falling. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yes. And they. You know, they went over to Deke, and and Deke did the cop show, and the fact that there isn't a huge cops fandom, I think, 
<laughs> we, we played a game uh, after, and I don't think you were there for that mm-hmm. one, but that was just a me and you episode. Oh, uh, right, right, right. And so we played the game because at the end of it, they were trying to do their, their carousel of characters. Yeah. Here's a, like a minute and a half long thing at the end of the episode. Here's all the characters on both sides. And and Chan just, we had fit, we'd, I'd watched the episode twice. We just recorded a whole podcast on it. And then uh, Chan kept naming characters, and I had no idea. Oh, who, I would have been the worst. A that. single. I had to make. I had to make up stories about who these people were because, like, who do you think this person is? I'm like, <laughs> I, I imagine bazooka, this is a, a, maybe. a, a highway renegade yeah. on a motorcycle who they found at a traffic stop and then realized he had potential through the way he answered their DUI questions, <laughs> and, and it's just crazy. So yeah, to to your point. Uh, once you saw cops, you had a general idea what they were going to do with G.I. Joe, and maybe, just maybe, the quality level wasn't quite going to be as high, given the <laughs> fact that we did the first episode of Operation Dragonfire for this podcast, and really didn't feel like doing any of the other ones. I, I'm still, I still think we should do them. I think we, you should, think we should go back and redo the first ourselves. one again. Yeah. <laughs> also, you, you had an idea that we would wear hair shirts while recording this. <laughs> yeah, all of these things seem to be of a piece, and I'm not a fan. Yeah, I'm not a fan. I, I don't want to trash anybody's work. On, of, of course, on, on the Joe, on the third Joe season, because a lot of people who had written for us, you know, they, you know, you need a paycheck. And of they course, were, they were hiring. Uh, I had a 30-second conversation with um, Deke about G.I. Joe, and they said, uh, we'd like you to write a script for us. And I said, sure. And I said, my price is – and I named a price. And they said, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, I guess I'm not writing a script no. for you. <laughs> that was the whole thing about season three. We've watched a few episodes of it now, and it's just – there's a certain attention to detail yeah. and a certain care about the characters that went into season one and two. And I'm not trying to be overly mean, but it's just clear that the people uh, – uh, uh, the powers that be – that when it came into season three, they had a very specific idea of we want these characters, we want to add in these characters, we don't care how you do it, just do it and and shut up. Well, that's, <laughs> like that's, well, but that's, what we that's what it was at Sunbow West. The difference was this. When they had started Sunbow West and they were, they were hiring and bringing people on board, they – they said, who are the best people we can get? And they, they looked at the animation industry. They looked at who had the best reputation as writers in the animation industry. And they recruited from that pool because animation writing at that time, there wasn't a great uh, spread in terms of you know who got paid what. The, the best writers did not get significantly more than you know the, the newbie who came in off the street. Um, there, there were a few exceptions. I mean, if you, if, if a network thought you were the only person who could write a particular type of show, you were gold. You could make a ton of money that way. But for the average good writer, that sounds like a paradox, doesn't it? <laughs> for the pool, the 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 top tier pool. So for the Gina yeah. Ippolitos of the world. Oh, you stop. We were, we were, we were not getting significantly more than what the rank and file were getting, and. The the difference was the reason we were up there was that we had that attention to detail that other people lacked. We would put more time and effort into our scripts, which was why our Saturday morning shows tended to be – our episodes tended to be better than other episodes. Well, you gave a crap. We gave a crap. Let's <laughs> yeah. start there. Exactly. <laughs> and it shows. So, so they and bring us in and and – 
you have to understand this was such a breath of fresh air because you, we had to deal with network censorship in the late 70s and the early 80s, ridiculous network censorship. And and we were being given shows like Transformers and G.I. Joe's where you can punch people, you can shoot things, you can blow stuff up. You couldn't actually kill anybody, but you could make the threat of death a real one, a palatable one. And we jumped on that like nobody's business. <laughs> And they gave us huge character, you know, they gave us these Bibles, show Bibles with all these characters in it, all the, the devices. Oh, jeez. The one for G.I. Joe must have been absolutely uh, Oh, my goodness. It's is, is like a phone book. <laughs> and the thing that happened was they would, they would then send us a, a list, and the list would have typically six characters on it, uh, a certain number of vehicles, and a certain number of playset accessories. And they would say, include these in the next episode you do. We don't care what the episode is, just Love include it. them. That's, that's freeing, though. It is, because first off, they would they would give you this mix and match. They'd give you a jungle character, a scuba diver character, and then a <laughs> desert vehicle. And now you've got to come up with a story where all three of those things fit in. <clears throat> but they'd also that's do rad. silly stuff like say, oh, and mention the G.I. Joe sandbags. We, you know, we have a sandbag. <laughs> sandbags! You know, and I'm, I, I said, you know, we're on a military base. You're going to be tripping over sandbags. Don't worry about the sandbags. But after about the the second script that everybody did, they realized, holy cow, these guys these guys will use every tool in the box. You know, you just put the toy set out there and say, guys, write stories, and they will dig in there. They'll find everything, and they'll use it. So after the first couple of weeks um, – they recognize, well, we don't have to tell people what to put in story. Just just let them write. And the, the most control that they exerted, because they had obviously final say, but the most control that they exerted would be along the lines of, you know, we think we've seen a little too much of Duke recently. You know, you can downplay him. Put or, him in a coma. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, we have another character we haven't seen enough of. Do something with him. Or we're cycling this tank out of the product line so you don't have to mention it anymore. And then things like that, little stuff. But um, it's, it's sort of like when I, when, I, when, I, when I hear things like that, and it's like, well, we're not going to use Breaker, Clutch, and uh, Steeler anymore. And so the G.I. Joe series comes up with this wonderful oh, two-part yeah. alternate reality episode that is just mm-hmm. brilliant sci-fi that it, it excuses the release of those three characters, still makes them heroic, and tells a massively compelling story. And I guess that's that's the difference to me. Well, it, well also, it's even smaller than that too because we had a character sparks i think who was the the original gi camo guy yeah Yeah. and they said we're going to cycle him out of the toy line so we said okay so we're not going to use him in the episodes anymore we're writing a a story where they where the joes have to go to a civilian company to get some information the glamour girls episode i believe yeah yeah we said well sparks he's he's you know he completed his tour of duty he left he's got a job now working for him and he greets his old buddies, you know, and so so cool. You yeah, know, that is cool. We just worked it in, and it it wasn't like we we were. It was that attention to detail. We remembered that you know we we have these characters. We can use them. We can we can reference without tying ourselves slavishly into a a story arc. We can reference things that had happened earlier. We can we can let the adventures these characters have 
make an impact on their lives, change the way they respond and react to things. Deke, and the industry joke was DIC stood for do it cheaper. (laughs) Um, They were a Ponzi scheme. Okay, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to hurt some people's feelings here, but (laughs) fuck you, Andy Hayward. (laughs) Um, Take that, Andy Hayward. Your day in the sun is over. Jean Chalopin started Deke in France, and he came to America, and he sold um, Inspector Gadget, which was – I love Inspector Gadget when I was a it's kid. It's a good, yeah. fun kid show. I like okay? that show. It's a good show. Uh, any, I remember watching it when it came on, and any criticisms I had were criticisms in specific manners of execution, not in concept. Okay, it was it was well done. It was funny, and then Jean hooked up with Andy, which is like the equivalent of saying, you know. Um, Lenny Bruce got addicted to heroin. (laughs) And Andy was a huckster and Andy was all on selling shows, making, you know, making the deal, so to speak, to go back to something we've been discussing earlier. Nobody makes better deals than Andy. Yeah. Well, (laughs) nobody made more of them, that's for sure. And and Andy and John had a falling out and, and he bought. John out, and John went back to France, if I remember correctly, and Andy kept Deke going. But he kept it going as a Ponzi scheme because what he was doing was he would – if it cost – and I am I seem to recall this was the number. I may be wrong, so don't hold me to it. Right. But in the mid-'80s, it cost $600,000 to do a half-hour animated episode. Whew, okay? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's that's – Fairly inexpensive, yeah. actually. You know, yeah. But I'm, I'm thinking of it back also in that like era, yeah, that era really. of money. Like that's obviously a lot more than it would still be today. Yeah, and but it just goes to show though how much production went into something ju- even small like that. Yes, yes. Yeah. It, it cost six hundred thousand. Andy would go to the network or to a syndicator and say, "Hey, I can do the show for five hundred thousand. You know, now you might if you have a really good crew." people who know limited animation, people who know how to write for limited animation. Lou Scheimer and um, Norm Prescott over at Filmation Studios were experts at this. You have people who really know how to do limited animation and are really writing tight on that budget. Because He-Man did yeah. that a lot. It was yeah. a lot of recycled uh, assets you on that can, show. You can shave – a few thousand dollars off, tens of thousands of dollars off. You're not going to shave a hundred thousand dollars <laughs> off the show. So he would sell. Well, let's start. He would he would sell the A show, you know, for five hundred thousand dollars. And he actually goes into production. And the thing is, you have to meet a certain quality of production, or else the people that are buying it are going to say, "Well, hey, this is crap. <laughs> why why are we paying you good money for crap?" So he would have to spend $600,000 to bring the show level up to minimum quality. That many had to come up with that 600000 somewhere else. Now, oh, geez. <laughs> when before syndication became big, animation studios would do what was called deficit financing. They they knew it would cost $600,000 to do the episode. They'd tell the network, we can do it for 400000 um, then they would get a loan from the bank saying, once the show goes into syndication, we can pay you back. Mm-hmm. And because it was a 
it was a well-established business form at that point. It wasn't difficult to go to the bank, get the loan for the the, the show, and do it. Because it felt like a sure thing as far exactly. as the bank was concerned. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, was, the moment you have X number of episodes, you know you're going to be able to syndicate it. You know you're going to get your money back. When the original syndication market started up, that knocked the pins out from under deficit financing. And so they couldn't do the shows for the same level of quality on hmm. Saturday morning deficit financing. They either had to get the money from the networks who were loath to pay it or they had, to do, they had to do them cheaper, which is where Andy came in again. Uh-oh. So you've done – A guy with a solution. Yeah. You've done the A show and it, you, you, you now need $100,000 to make it minimally acceptable. So you turn around and you sell – the B show and the C show, and you tell people, I can do these Uh shows for $500,000. They give you $500,000 for that. You shave $50,000 off of each show, and you put it in that one. Well, now you're $450,000, and you got to come up with (laughs) $150,000 for two shows. So now you sell four shows. Okay? By the time this finally caught up with Andy... It was uh, the Beanie and Cecil show that they were doing. Jeez, okay. There was uh, Beanie and Cecil lasted a grand total of two weeks. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't even know that. <laughs> I know Beanie and Cecil, and I thought it was much bigger than that. So. No, no, Beanie and Cecil, the original Beanie and Cecil, yeah. Be- yeah, oh, okay. But oh, the, there was a reboot. Re- reboot. Okay. Oh, okay, okay. I know uh, Beanie and Cecil. And I, at that point, I was I was desperate for cash, and I was willing to do the you know a script for them. And they said, okay, here's the thing. Write the script with extreme long-held reaction shots. (laughs) So somebody says something, and you cut to a character with a goofy expression responding to it, and we're going to hold on to that for two seconds, you know, to pad the time out. So if if you can imagine doing a joke, and then you cut to a two-second held shot of somebody (laughs) making a goofy look... And oh no, that's what happens here. I was gonna yeah. say they just put a laugh track to cover it. Yeah, there's no, yeah. there's no cameras here. But Ray says something. Oh yeah, no, here, stare at him. We just stare. And I do also put a laugh track in as well. Yes. But but and, and then nothing could actually happen, you know, on on camera. And and when we were working at filmation and we were doing this stuff, we understood this. We were we were told, look, you know, you if if you can have the biggest crash in the world if if somebody just winces and looks away and you put in the the sound effects warner brothers did that <laughs> mm-hmm. the old warner yeah. brother cartoons yeah. you know tweety would you know wince and look away and you hear this awful crash mm-hmm. and then you cut over and then there's this big horrible wreckage you don't have to animate the actual crash yeah you know it's the it's the reaction tarantino in in Reservoir Dogs, he goes, wow, we don't actually have to have a, a big, massive shootout. We just have to have everybody talking about the big, mm-hmm. massive shootout, and the audience is going to fill it in. It's, it's the classic writing technique of uh, tell us, don't show us. Yes. It's very popular. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, it, it, it applied carefully, it can work. Yeah. Yes. But oh, totally. The, the problem was by, by this point – the Beanie and Cecil show had a budget of somewhere I was I was told I couldn't believe it when they told me <laughs> fifty to sixty thousand dollars oh, for geez. a half hour. Oh wow! Oh jeez! Oh, they were trying to get this on the air, and they were going to be using same as held shots, stock animation. But you can't do clutch cargo for fifty thousand dollars. No, you can't. I mean, it's it's wow. it's you know absolutely ridiculous. And and that was the point where it finally caught up with them. That was yeah. the point where they couldn't outrun it. 
And and this wasn't an unusual thing. I mean, it was it. Andy, you were there cheering it on because you wanted something bad to happen. To Andy. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it happened with Full Moon Productions. You remember that? Mm-hmm. Uh, what did they do? Not Charles Band, uh, his son. Oh, anyway, but. Um, I'm trying to remember if Charles Band was the father of the son, but it was a father. There was a guy who was a B movie producer, and his son became a B movie producer, and his son ended up hiring his father to work on it. And they had a deal with Paramount to do original VHS, original directed to video uh, horror and sci fi films. They cool. did um, Dollman, they did Trancers, they did. Um, uh, they did the ones with the puppets. Uh, puppet, puppet master. Puppet master. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So That's they did. Awesome. They did these, and and they were they were doing the same thing that same kind of film that Roger Corman did, only without as much skin and as much violence. But still, if you could do it for a certain budget, if you could, you know, the the rule of thumb was if you could produce something and get it on VHS. For under uh, two million dollars, the market the 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 yeah the market was such that even the crappiest thing, as long as it made is cost less than two million dollars, would turn a profit. Yeah, there was a guy who was making films out in Hawaii, um, and and I'm trying Andy Sedaris, and he was making films that were basically bikini gals working for the FBI solving crimes in 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 Hawaii. I've just found my new favorite genre of film. <laughs> uh, this um. guy, but this guy made a ton of them and he made a fortune off of it because he knew well for, number one we're shooting in Hawaii no lights. You yeah. just go out yeah, on yeah. the beach. Uh-huh. Okay. Number two no costumes. Yep. <laughs> you know, you've got bikini girls firing yep. machine guns. The, 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 the most money we spend is on blanks, <laughs> you know, and then you just you just build a story around that. And as long as you've got bikini girls and you've got some <laughs> some bad guys and you have some some gunfights and some boat chases and some kung fu, the audience will love it. And they did. Yeah. This guy made a fortune <laughs> oh, off yeah. of it. He made, I, he made like imagine. 16 of these films and oh they're all goodness. virtually identical. But I mean, <laughs> who cares? And and the full moon people were trying to do the same thing. They were trying to they were trying to do what Roger Corman did. And they were trying to do it for the direct to video market. And they fell into the same trap that, that Andy Hayward was, which was they said, we can make this for X. They overpromised. Yeah, they overpromised. We can make it for X, but in order to make it, you needed X plus a hundred grand. <laughs> so okay, well, we'll take a hundred grand from the next couple of movies and build it up. And the problem was they never could get caught up again. They were robbing <laughs> Peter to pay Paul. Yeah. And in the end, they they collapsed and they they had these projects. There was um, there was an animator, uh, stop motion animator, Doug. Beswick, I believe, was his name, and he had this incredible project called um, oh, not the Inhumanoids. I'm trying to remember what the name of it was now. The Immortals, or something like that. And it was this great lost civilization of sentient dinosaur-like uh, reptiles. I mean, yeah. And they had di- they had dinosaurs like you know Triceratops and whatnot that were uh, their uh, their uh, draft animals and things like this it was it 
it was the same concept, the same general concept and tone of the Indiana Jones movies like a decade before Indiana Jones. And this guy had been trying for years and years to get the project up and off the ground. And they hired him in to do stop motion effects for Full Moon with the promise, we will make this movie for you, but you've got to do the special effects for these others. And they were basically shooting his movie Hmm. bits and pieces. Mm -hmm. And then when it collapsed... All of that went with it. I mean, this this great unfin- unfinished um, sci-fi epic, mm. you know, never got completed. What yeah, a crazy idea, though, is to, to you want to make your movie, but you can never make your movie because nobody will agree to it. So you end up making 10 other movies and then using the assets from those movies, you piece together the movie you want to make what? and then basically for nothing, make your 11th movie that way. No, people have done That's that. That's brilliant. Yeah. I love people it. have done that. There have been any number of low budget films that were, were shot ancillary to a, a big production. Somebody said, well, you know. When they're not looking, let's go over here and we'll shoot a little bit here and a little bit there. There's a Roger Corman film called The Terror. Have you have you ever heard the story behind this is great. This is this involves Francis Ford Coppola, Roger Corman, Boris Karloff, and Jack Nicholson. It's a winner. Corman had you know, a, a reputation, and, and many actors would only appear in his films if they got paid in cash at the end of the day. That was Vincent Price's <laughs> gig. At the end of the day, Price put his hand out. Corman put money in it. Price would show up the next day. <laughs> My you know, understanding with Corman, though, is that's the correct way yes, to, 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 to work. And uh, he was making um, The Raven. They had um, Karloff and, and – uh, Price and Peter Lorre and Jack Nicholson in The Raven have these beautiful sets. Um, Lorre and Price are getting paid off every day. And Karloff has a contract that he will appear for X number of days at a set price. (laughs) Corman being Corman, they finish the film three days early. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Corman's looking around. He says, wow, I've got this great big spooky set. Um, and I've got Boris Karloff for three days, and we're going to do something. Hell yeah! And so they started throwing this movie together, and it was basically, you know, Boris, go up and down the steps, go say something menacing over here. There was no <laughs> script. They were just improvising stuff. And they had Jack Nicholson, so Jack Nicholson is talking with Karloff. They they grab Dick Miller, and they drag him into it. And, <laughs> um, and I think they got Dick Miller because – Dick Miller had done another Poe film for them, and they had, like, leftover footage of him in period costumes. This is almost Plan 9 from Outer Space in its own way. They throw this all together, and then they try to edit it into a coherent movie, (laughs) and it doesn't edit into a coherent movie. (laughs) Shocker. Who knew? uh, So they they've got this young guy who is is eager to have his chance to to direct something. So they say, okay, Francis, um, take Jack, go up to Malibu and and just shoot some stuff on the beach, so you don't have to use a lighting crew, <laughs> <laughs> and just you know get some actress and and shoot something that'll kind of tie all this together. So Coppola goes up and he shoots this footage of Nicholson meet, meeting this beautiful female witch and they talk and they they make allusions to something horrible that's going to happen. And they bring it back and, and the footage doesn't cut together because you go from this <laughs> dark, cramped, really spooky looking 
castle to um, this big, bright beach. Mm -hmm. And other than Jack Nicholson is in both of them, there's nothing to connect it. What's weird about this is this movie, when it did come together, became The Godfather. (laughs) (laughs) You're not – actually, there's stories about The Godfather, too. Excuse me, Godfather, too. Yeah. (laughs) Three. 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 There you go. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, so – then they hand it over to Jack Hill, and they tell Jack, says, come up with something that will explain all this. So Jack Hill brings in another character. He brings in, he brings in an old witch who explains what the young witch is all about mm-hmm. and is talking with Jack Nicholson. And, you know, Nicholson is, is – meanwhile, he's got this other side project oh that he's goodness. doing with, uh, you know, Fonda and Dennis Hopper. You know, Fonda and Dennis Hopper about these guys riding motorcycles. <laughs> that never took off. Yeah. You know, and so – and so Nicholson is coming back and shooting stuff, and they can't edit it together, and they finally come up with an idea of how to tie everything together. But now they don't have the set. They don't have Karloff. They don't have the beautiful witch girl. They've only got Nicholson and the actress playing the old witch. And they have a cemetery set. Oh, boy. <laughs> so they shoot Nicholson and the witch running across the cemetery, and all of a sudden Nicholson just comes to a halt and says, wait a minute, what is going on here? And the witch explains the movie to him. (laughs) She fills in all the plot holes. Oh, my goodness. And Nicholson goes, okay, and they take off. I love it. That's fantastic. That's called called, uh, using your assets and being smart about it. We should watch that movie now and do a podcast recap on it. Do the name of that movie? And that movie became Riverdale. Riverdale. And I love it. The name of it was The Terror. The Terror. There we go. And and Corman did that. I mean, um, he did a movie, The Wild Angels, um, which was The Wild Angels put together the package that made Easy Rider possible. So he's shooting The Wild Angels and they – it doesn't edit together. And he remembers, oh, we've got a scene in it where um, this this uh, Vietnam vet who was a medic is also a member of this motorcycle group. Yeah. And he they bring him in to, to try to save uh, Bruce Dern's life. But Bruce Dern is you know, too badly injured at that point. So they said, great, we'll shoot a scene where before he goes in to save his life – he talks with two other guys who explain everything that's happening in the picture so that we can tie all the plot holes together. Love it. Bruce starts bleeding to death and they're spending five <laughs> minutes talking about what's going Don't look over here. Keep your eyes on the road. Got something for you. Take a listen to this. In the newest Pokemon, they have Score Bunny, which is a starter. What? Yes. Score Score Bunny? So it's it's a fire bunny that plays soccer. He kicks balls. He scores. Great. Score, like Scorch, I think. Yeah. Oh, I get it. Like goal. Like Score Bunny. <laughs> Rad. There's Score Bunny. 
who uses his mad soccer skills to steal, I think like donuts or something like that. How does he use his soccer skills to steal donuts? He kicks it. Oh, yummy. The best part is though, Score Bunny wants to go and follow Ash and go on big adventures. But oh my Ash god, is like, Ash is still the main character of the f anime? Yes, where have you been? Yeah, so Ash is like, I'm getting on the train, I'm leaving, Score Bunny. And Score Bunny's is it like- Is he's 80 years old? That's why he sounds like that? <laughs> Nothing makes donuts taste better than a foot coming in contact with them. <laughs> if you like what you heard and love co-op with your friends, check out Gaming Together, a cooperative podcast. That's Gaming Together, a cooperative podcast.